take the moment to unplug, get off autopilot, figure out what risks you want to mitigate and see what the best way it is to mitigate that risk. That's Bill Perkins, renowned hedge fund manager and the best-selling author of Die With Zero, getting all you can from your money and your life. I will argue that the best way to mitigate that risk is not you piling up a bunch of cash that you never touch and, and you die with. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Bill Perkins to discuss why your life is the sum of your experiences, the unconventional financial advice that could change your life for the better, and why waiting to enjoy your life can end up being the biggest regret you'll ever have. A lot of people treat this vacation here on earth like it lasts forever. And when you go on vacation and you know the vacation is going to end, you actually enjoy it more. You actually get more out of it. You soak it in, you savor every moment because you know it's going to end. But a lot of people are running around busybodying on autopilot, doing the things that they've habituated for them to survive and don't thrive. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I imagine this will be, to some the people listening, a fairly controversial podcast. So obviously I want to dive into your book, Die With Zero, which has some pretty contrarian, very valuable, just life advice, financial advice, and so on. But I'm curious before we get into that, what motivated you to even write this book in the first place? A long time ago, before I had any money, I, I was kind of wondering what it's all about. When you're young, right, you're doing it all to get the girls. <laughs> but over the arc of my life, why am I making money and going into the commodity exchange on Wall Street? And, you know, I would see people who were wealthy. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a wealthy person in New York City. But I would say to myself, but they're old. Now, granted, these were people who are younger than I am right now. But, you know, my mindset was like, what does it matter if you're rich at that age? What are you going to do, drive a fancier car to drive your kids home? Like, it, there's really no purpose. And so even though I was kind of ageist and was clueless about future life and future me and things that I can do with money... You know, you intuitively have it in your mind that money has a declining value to you as you age, right? And so everybody will say, oh, I want to be rich before I'm 30 or I want to be rich before X, but nobody says I want to be rich before I'm 80 or 90. And everybody intuitively gets the reason why. There's all kinds of thought experiments going on right now. Like, would you be a billionaire, but you're 89 years old or, you know, broke now that they broke now, right? Or... Would you rather have a billion dollars or a billion extra seconds? You know, and it's overwhelmingly, I'd rather have a billion extra seconds. And so this whole idea of the utility of money 
declining with age and the fact that I don't want to waste hours of my life going to work in exchange for no reward. So therefore, I'm going to spend it all before I die. The question of when and how dogged me for many years and eventually became this book. And who would you say was like, I mean, I guess initially the kind of the ideal audience for this book? Because I imagine that this is probably not for everyone. I'm sure people can benefit from certain nuggets, but who's kind of the target audience? I mean, the target audience was myself. Like I originally was thinking about this when I was broke, right? Like it was really like a started out as a time allocation problem, right? You have time and it's like, where do you dedicate your time to work or working out or going to the bar or doing X, Y, and Z? Life is like Tetris. You got to kind of get the order right or you don't get the high score. When I talk about high score, I talk about fulfillment. And so the crass or example I like to use is like, hey, you're going to the strip club days should happen before you get married, not after, right? You're going to Winnie the Pooh and, and watching that movie with your daughters. Well, there's a time period when that season is going to end and you're not going to be able to watch Winnie the Pooh movies when they're 13, 14 with your daughters, right? They're like, see you, dad, I don't want to know you. And so that allocation of your time, that allocation of your wealth, and that allocation of your health those are the variables that I'm looking at. And what I'm solving for is net fulfillment. So, you know, I've said before, like, I don't give a shit about the money. I don't even give a shit about the time and health. I'm solving for maximum net fulfillment and how they interplay. And so, you know, I don't want to be the most in shape, ripped guy there ever was because the amount of time I would have to put in to do that and it would be suffering and it wouldn't be fulfilling. But I know also that being out of shape will preclude me from doing or enjoying future experiences. And so there's a balance, right, of how you allocate your time, how you distribute your wealth throughout your life, how you use those resources in order to get maximum fulfillment. And that's what I'm solving for. I'd say like that's the purpose of life, right? And so when you say, well, there are people who will work for better, I will concede that if you're a person who's essentially wasting your wealth and your time in spades, right, you're a billionaire or, or you know, a hundred millionaire but you're not getting the value, the fulfillment from putting that effort in, then by definition, you're wasting more of life and fulfillment than somebody else who has less, right? Yep. But there are people who are on autopilot with no money that can reorder their life and reorder their decisions and increase their fulfillment using the mental models presented in the book. So there's a lot that I want to unpack there. I mean, I, I know there's one example you give in the book about going wakeboarding, right? There's only yeah. up to a certain age where you can do that and probably really enjoy it, right? The same thing right. as like if you want to run an Ironman. And yes, there's people that do this at older age, but oftentimes the ones that do it were running previous marathons and Ironmans and things like that, right? Correct. There's this idea that in the back of people's heads that I'm going to retire at 65 or whatever the age is and my life is going to look like a carnival commercial. And it's just not true. I lived in St. Thomas for seven years where carnival actually stopped. Carnival doesn't even look like a carnival commercial, but like your ability, your aptitude, your attitude, your lung capacity, your bone density, your muscle strength, all these things preclude you from either doing the activity or actually enjoying it. One of the things I used to like to do is go stay in another city for three months, right? Because I figured like if you stay long enough, you get past just the tourist traps and you actually get into the culture, walk around and understand where you're at. And I figured if I did this and I did a bunch of cities, I'd actually be an interesting human. So I used to walk all around the cities, right? The walking cities, I love them, 12 miles a day, right? Now I could walk 12 miles a day, but my knees hurt after five or seven. 
And so I don't get the same fulfillment or same value out of the city that I visit now. And so the question is, is did I choose the right time to do that in my life? Should I have allocated that earlier, had those experiences and be living off the memory dividends of those experiences? Or do I push them later, right? And so this game of Tetris is coming back, right? This life allocation, even with the same amount of money, it's like, when do I do what? And speaking of this allocation, just, just to give people some context. So just anytime anyone's given any kind of advice, our whole mantra is don't take advice from people who don't have the results. And for people who are listening that may not be familiar with you, they may be skeptical to opening their minds about this type of idea. If you could kind of share your background and just this approach that you take throughout the book of really focusing on almost like financial modeling, but doing it for your life. Yeah, it's a counterfactual regret minimization algorithm. So that's a fancy word for what if analysis to solve for net fulfillment, right? Like when you play a chess computer, it's a counterfactual regret minimization solving for checkmate, right? And so I wanted to originally write a program to tell me how much to spend and what to do each day, but there's not enough computing power in the world. But what I could do is get the mental models out that help people make the right decisions and reduce waste in their life, right? And when I say waste in their life, I mean actually wasting their life. So my background is I started off as like assistant, assistant, assistant peon on New York Mercantile Exchange floor way back when. Kind of worked my way up through brokering and trading, got recruited to Texas to do over-the-counter derivatives trading in energy, particularly natural gas. Joined a fund called Centaurus, my friend, started running it. It was the most successful hedge fund in the history of hedge funds. He called in rich. I opened up my own hedge fund. I made a bunch of money doing that. I've done, I got a bunch of other things, but I want this whole podcast, you know, I'm an old guy, right? This whole podcast, you know, would be about me. But essentially, I made my money in commodities trading. I have a bunch of other ventures and things going on in my life. And I still run my hedge fund. I have a couple of startups, a family office, et cetera. Standard stuff for a guy in my career. So then let's say someone's listening. They're saying, Bill, must be nice or easy for you to say. And, you know, they're thinking about, I'd love to take my family on vacation, a nice vacation, do more trips and more time out of the office. But I either don't have the financial resources to do it or I don't have, let's say, the time in quotes to do it. So they're practicing in their mind, like delayed gratification. Why do you believe that's not always the best choice? One, because delayed gratification at the extreme is no gratification. And you usually find that amongst wealthier people, not people what less means. And the other thing I would say is like, especially for people that I know or friends that don't have the money is this bullshit because every place I go, there's somebody doing it for one one thousandth the cost. They're watching the same view, capturing the same sunset, walking on the same beach, going through the same shops and stores. They just cut a deal and got the super saver and the Airbnb special and et cetera. I think some of the most enjoyable times people had that I've seen is gap year students broke backpacking, hiking throughout Europe. Now, I'm not saying people have to go backpacking. But I actually ran an experiment. This is kind of funny, a little segue. into this. There's a thing called the coin flip trip. You can actually look it up on YouTube. I think it was part of the Thirst Lounge or whatever, but coin flip trip. And basically, these two guys were traveling around in different cities, and they could flip a coin and live high on the hog, and I think it was like a couple hundred dollars a day or $50 a day. And so in different cities, like they were in a very expensive city, I think in Switzerland, where they flipped low and they came back and said their most rich experience, the ones they enjoyed the most were the low days when they were scrambling to make ends meet and having to interact with people and have that favors. Now, I'm not saying you have to go to that extreme. My point is, is that no matter where I go, there is somebody with one one thousandth the means 
sometimes even doing it better, actually getting more fulfillment out of the trip. And in terms of maximizing fulfillment, whenever you talk about investments, it's investing in experiences, whereas some people may look at it and say, well, that experience is short-lived. Why is that really an investment? How can experiences have you know, a return on investment? Yeah. So when I say experiences also, I don't mean my experiences and my choices. It's, it's just another word for your choice, right? Like you may have different values. The best experience might be going to a chess tournament or playing chess or, you know, I don't tell people how to live. I tell them how to get the most out of their life according to their own values to optimize their life. And so when you have an experience, whether it be a first kiss, a game winning home run, a vacation trip, a call with your mother, you get the joy of having that experience, but a lot of the hedonic value from that experience comes later when you recall it. Like when you get together with your buddies and your friends, a lot of times you talk about things that have happened. I have friends every time we get together, we told the same stories maybe a thousand times and we enjoy it every time, we laugh about it, et cetera. And so your self-concept, your fulfillment is not only the experience itself, but also a piece of it or a dividend, what I call a memory dividend, every time you recall it and think about it or discuss it. And when you go out to dinner with new people, what do you talk about? Well, you do talk about ideas and concepts that haven't happened, but a lot of times you talk about things that have happened. And then you that creates a new moment. So they're radioactive. They're actually compounding. And so much like investing in the bank where you get interest rate dividend. Now we're actually getting an interest rate, right? Investing in experiences pays a dividend every time you recall it. And so when you're thinking about why this is important is, is when you're thinking about delayed gratification, because that's what happens, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to save money and go on two ski trips 10 years from now instead of taking one ski trip now, right? From the, from the interest that you earn net over inflation, right? And you have to think about is it better to have the trip now plus the memory dividend than two trips later? Will those compounding memory dividends and radioactive experiences that I have talk about it and discussing, will that enrich my life more than two ski trips later? And that's going to be a different answer depending on who you are, how social you are, all kinds of factors, right? But it's just a way to think about that problem, right? For me, at my age, there's no two ski trips later worth one ski trip now, Right. Maybe if I was 20, it would be. And certain, certain experiences, depending on what type of experience we're talking about, they're better enjoyed later in life when you can understand and appreciate them, right? And so it's not that I have the answer for every single person. What I have is the methodology and the way to think about this, about, hey, do I want to delay gratification? Does that really make sense investing in these bonds or et cetera to, in order to consume it 10 years from now? Or should my consumption be high now, given my current health, my expected death date, the decline, et cetera, right? Like when you're 40, you're losing about 1% muscle mass per year. And strength is a little bit more than that, right? So that, that changes your activities and you got to work like hell to fight that. Your lung capacity, your mental capacity, all these things happen, right? And then there's also the Tetris game of life. What's going on? That will preclude me from doing that, right? Like somebody says, oh, I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. But they say, oh, I'm going to wait till later. Then they're married. They have small kids. And this happens. And there's a graduation, et cetera. And then somehow that just never happens, right? They get to a point where they're not physically able. They wouldn't even enjoy it. And Kilimanjaro doesn't even sound that great anymore, right? So these are the things people have to think about when they're talking about optimizing their lives. And where do you believe, I mean, if there is a balance, where's kind of the balance between 
investing into the future, right? Let's say putting away money. And I actually, I want to get your thoughts on like the fire movement or the fat fire movement for people listening who aren't familiar with that. It's like financial independence, retire early on Reddit. People essentially who kind of live lives of frugality to figure out what their number is to the point where they could just stop working and then go on in their mind, kind of live their life, right? But they're living their life in a way that's very much on the cheap, right? And then the fat fire movement is very similar, but they're living at large, but it's still saying that I'm trying to get to this number that when I get there, then I'll start doing all the things I want to do. Just talking about the fire movement. I like the fire guys, particularly because they understand the concept of enough. The birth of the fire movement or the mother of the fire movement is this book called Your Money or Your Life. It would be the Bible before the fire movement. And that book really gets into concept of what, what is money? And the, the universal definition they use is money is something we exchange our time for. And then two, the concept of enough, which is like you have everything that you need and you want out of life, plus maybe a little bit more, right? And so the fire people say, okay, I'm going to live as frugally as I possibly can, right? Work and save and bare bones. My ego is out of this, et cetera. And then I am going to live off the principle of my investments and the returns of my investments for the rest of my life and do whatever the hell I want, Right. In the United States of America, in a place where we have a savings problem, et cetera, it's not like I hate the fire movement. I just think it's inefficient and incorrect. And here's the reason why. And I use this as an example. There is no amount of money you can pay me to do 10 years in Sing Sing. Zero, right? And so maybe I would have done, you could have paid me when I was 20 to do two years, you know, a lot of money and I go out, right? But there is no money now in my life that I would pay to do 10 years in Sing Sing. And so what these people are doing, in essence, is going to a jail, a jail of their own making, but a jail. And then saying, oh, when I come out, this is my reward. I'm going to get some money for doing this jail stint, right? The second thing that's wrong with it is that they're just a mathematical calculation. They build up this principle and they live off the interest and the dividends, but they should be spending down the principle as well. To the extent that they die with the principle left is hours of their life that they wasted in jail that they never get the gratification from, right? Delayed gratification at its extreme is no gratification. So they literally wasted hours and years of their lives by going in jail, right? So those are the two things I have wrong with the, with the fire movement. I think some of them have actually said, yeah, you're right. Why would I leave the principle? <laughs> you know, like I would spend down the principle. And then some of them thought like, why would I go in jail and remove all these experiences that are for this period of my life? Like there are certain experiences that are only meant or best done in your 20s. There are some that are best in your 30s and in 40s. And then that's the same for every person, but every person has them go, yeah, you're right. These are experiences that belong in this time bucket of my life. And these are the experiences that belong in this time bucket of life. And it's difficult or impossible to transfer these experiences from time bucket to time bucket. So if you take a time bucket and say, hey, I'm going to jail, all those experiences that don't transfer out, you never get them. And therefore, I'd say your life is less fulfilling. And I'm not solving for max money. I'm solving for max fulfillment. On converse of that, you do make it clear in the book that like you want to live every day well, but at the same time being mindful that you know you don't want to live like every day like today's your last day, right? So just completely no, no, YOLO no. every day. No, no, no. Like it's it's that's the problem, right? That's the original problem I was thinking about. It's not like oh, you spend all the money YOLO every day. Like the day you die, the day you're going to die informs your behavior today, 
right? You can just do the thought experiment, right? Like the day before you're going to die, your behavior is going to be wildly different from five years before you die, from 10 years before you die, and so on. You just integral. Like if it's one day, two days before you're going to die, if you absolutely know three days, right, your behavior changes. And so it's very important to be aware of one, your death, and two, your physical decline, so that you allocate your spending, which is your choices, right, appropriately, right? And so, you know, I talk in the book, is like, listen, the main experience we want is to survive, right? Your survival number. And so after your survival number, so I'm not working, I got my food, clothing, and shelter paid for, the rest are choices, it's about thriving. What does thrive mean to me? And that's different for every single person. And survival is pretty much defined amongst every person. I need food, clothing, and shelter, right? What do I need to survive? And that's different if you live in Iowa City, Iowa versus Palm Springs or Atlanta, Georgia, right? Like, so you run those numbers, you run these calculations, et cetera. And then you're like, okay, now I have this pile of choices. We're going to call them choices, but it's really money, right? How do I allocate that throughout my life? What is the way to get the maximum fulfillment? Am I putting my ski dollars or my wake surfing dollars in the 65 to 75 bucket when they really probably belong here, right? Or am I riding around trains? I'm talking about myself. Riding around trains, which I love. Am I riding trains now and not doing other activities that I should be doing now? And I should really put trains in the future. Like one of the things I don't do, just in terms of like a no money decision or a low money decision is... I don't watch any series or any TV unless my wife forces me to. And people are like, why? And I was like, one, I get low value out of news or I didn't even watch the news, right? I get my information from other sources. Like most of the stuff doesn't pertain for me. I have no way of impacting me. It's just not interesting to me. But the main reason is, is that there will be a time when all I do is watch TV, where that is my main source of entertainment is sitting in front of a screen and watching shows. And so I can't wait to watch some of these shows. Like I cannot wait to watch Big Bang Theory and, and all the Seinfeld episodes and all these shows that people say are great. I'm like, yeah, that's great. I got them all in the time bucket in the future. And now I do all the other things like going outdoors and traveling and doing the other stuff. And so that's part of the like no money allocation and optimizing of my life. Have you seen Breaking Bad? I saw one episode. Okay, oh, you're, you're <laughs> in for a treat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I can't wait. Like people, I was like, I oh, stop. And like, I had one time my friend begged me to watch Game of Thrones and I like begged me, begged me, begged me. And I'm watching it on my phone, walking through an airport, through Amsterdam to watch this show. And of course, these shows are pretty good. I mean, the writings are pretty, pretty good, at least this episode, season one, season two. And I been watched like two seasons and like was dead tired in Amsterdam and like didn't get out biking more. And I was like, you know, that was a great show, but I'd rather have spent the hours well rested and biking throughout Amsterdam than Game of Thrones, which I can watch next 30 years. Right. And so things like that, I deleted the chess app on my phone. I'm addicted to playing speed chess and it was just taking too much of my time. I love it. This is something I could do for the rest of my life. Ah, uh, okay. So, right? so I, that, I was going to ask you, like, how do you reconcile that, right? There's like the John Lennon quote of like, the time you enjoy wasting is not wasted time. But what you're saying is essentially, I do enjoy it, but I'm going to be able to do that later in my life. But there's things that I'm not going to be able to do now. 
Correct. Or I'm not going to be able to do later that I need to do now. Correct. There's people I I need to be talking with. There's places I need to go. There's all kinds of other activities that are meant for this time bucket. And playing chess, watching TV, activities like that easily fit into 75 to 85 bucket. You know, I sat down doing the exercise I created. And I'm not the guru, by the way. I wrote this book for me. I was not joking. Like, I was like, holy shit, this time bucketing thing is hard. You know? And I was like... 65 to 75. And I was like, I don't really have that many activities. I can't even think of things I want to do. I'm seeing my grandchildren, visit my whatever. And I was like, oh, chess. I like to play a lot of speed chess. Oh, oh, uh, uh, watch all these shows. Here they go. Wow. They, you know, go training, riding around trains and train society, which is really awesome. I discovered that by accident. But the, these things now are, are starting to fill up when I think about it, because I was doing these things I would say in an unoptimized way. Not that I wasn't getting any value out of it doing it now. I will get more value out of my life. The totality of my fulfillment will be better by optimizing my allocation. And much of this also really has to do with like knowing or having an idea of when you're going to die. And I'm, and I'm curious just from your perspective, because with all the studies in longevity, I mean, we are living longer. Who knows what it can look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now. What are your thoughts on that as the lifespan continues to expand? It's not only lifespan, right? Because current medicine, this is kind of like your utility and your mobility, et cetera. And then when you get to about here, when you're at the, like the worst part of your life, they give you an extra five years. They'll spend a goo gob of fucking money for you to be this decrepit shadow version of yourself eking out another five years. So what I really hope is like health span, which and lifespan grow, you know? And so I focus mainly on health span and, 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 pray for the miracle of extended lifespan with a great health span. And, you know, given this model, right, like it's not a set in stone, like I'm going to die at 86 or 84. My health curve looks like this. Every day it gets updated, right? You make it to 70 and you're doing fine and it gets updated, right? But I'm living on model, right? So that the model is a continuously updated counterfactual minimization algorithm, right? One of the main things you need to be aware of and understand is, one, what is my biological age? Not the number that's on your birth certificate. Like, if you're overweight and you're smoking or whatever, like, and you go, you, like, really understanding those metrics gives you an idea of your lifespan and your health span and being honest with yourself and being aware of it. You know, a lot of people treat this vacation here on Earth like it lasts forever, and when you go on vacation and you know the vacation is going to end, you actually enjoy it more. You actually get more out of it. You run around, you do things, you get up, you see the sunrise, the sunset, you soak it in, you savor every moment because you know it's going to end. But a lot of people are running around busybodying on autopilot, doing the things that they've habituated for them to survive and don't thrive at all. This is interesting. I, I don't know the answer to this, but... There are probably more people less wealthy than me, and I would say out of a, like a random sample, within 10% wealthier than me that I'd rather switch places with than people that are twice as wealthy as me. You know, because I, I go to these, you know, these people, these high net wealth, they're like, oh, will you come speak on it, whatever. And I have a lot of wealthy friends. And I, I you know, I always say like, rich people are the dumbest people. <laughs> you know what I mean? We are the dumbest <laughs> because... We've gotten really good at something, whether it be law or really good at, and we've habituated stuff. It's like second nature to us, right? And it goes into your default mode network almost, right? And you have all these default mode neck things to go pile up money, pile up money. But you essentially become a robot and wasting your life. 
And I find that to be more true with wealthier people who are becoming self successful than less wealthy people. And do you think that has to do with like this drive for achievement? I know in the book, you talk about a colleague of yours where you said, Hey, once I get to this net worth number, that's it, I'm done. And then it gets to a hundred million. He says, I'm going to go for 200 million and you get to 200 million and starts going beyond that. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. While there's probably people listening, of course, that say, you know what, Bill, I love the work I do. I love the career I'm in. I, I it brings me tremendous fulfillment. I don't ever want to stop. I got a lot of, I think one is habits, right? When you get good at something like, you know, the pros make it look easy. It's because they've been doing it repeatedly, hundreds and hundreds of times. It's second nature, right? Like look at Stephen Curry hitting a three, right? It's like, I love hitting threes, right? Like, and so if you put a rat in a wheel, right? You got to give them the cheese and they love the cheese. And, but eventually you don't even have to give them the cheese. You just show them the wheel and they'll start running. And they, they love running. And they forget the connection to why they were running. They were running for the cheese, right? And so I use that for people in life. And a lot of it, I think, is just habituated. The second thing is, is that I believe human beings are puzzle-solving AIs. We love solving puzzles, right? And so the puzzle of work is the thing that people know they love solving, and it's the only puzzle they know. But that doesn't mean that's the optimal thing they should be doing with their life in their only source of enjoyment. I was had a conversation just the other day. We were talking about the uh, Monty Hall question. Do you know the Monty Hall question? Yeah. So there's three doors. The guy picks a door for the prize. And then Monty Hall opens up one of the two doors that doesn't have the prize and then asks the person, would you like to switch? Right? And the mathematical answer is you always switch. Right? And people are like, why? I says, well, now you have a 50-50 chance. And when you took when your first guess was one third and sometimes people still don't get it, but I like to ex expand it out to infinity. Let's say I presented you, there's one door with a prize and there's a million doors, right? I say, pick a door. You pick one door. Then I eliminate 998,998 9 other doors so that there's only two doors. And I said, okay, do you want to stick with your original choice or do you want to switch? Everybody goes, yeah, I would want to switch, right? Like what's the odds that I picked the, the right prize? I say that's life. People wind up in a job like I'm an attorney and I'm doing a thing and this is what, and I love it. And I was like, yeah, but is it really the best thing you should be doing with your life? What's the odds that you happenstance fell into the best thing you should be doing for your life out of the millions of things you can be doing in the world, right? And the issue is you've been habituated. You like the people. You've been trained to eat near work. Your personal relationships come from work. Everything you've done comes from work. The whole work is taken over your life. And you are now, not only do you like solving the puzzles and you have a habit, you're dependent on it. A lot of people leave work. They like, they don't know how to socialize. They don't know how to meet their neighbors. They don't know how to do anything. You know what I mean? These are atrophied muscles that they haven't used. And so that's my theory on why you have a lot of resistance. Like, I just love my work. I, I do the work, whatever. It's like, I can't really argue with that. You know, I get it. I get in with people. I'm like, listen, heroin addicts, they feel great. You know, you <laughs> they don't have a problem, right? They're happy. You can't argue like heroin's a great drug, right? Like you're just saying like, listen, I don't think this is the best life you can possibly live. I think if you got off heroin, you would actually have a more fulfilling life, but they love the heroin. And so everybody has their own version of the heroin argument with, I love my job. 
to your point, has probably become, it's shaped someone's identity, right? It's in their mind, it's become their purpose, right? Their networks, their peer groups, everything is around that. And when they're out, that's all they talk about, right? So they, I mean, they don't know if maybe they would have loved surfing or they would have loved something else, or in your case, obviously poker, right? Just all the things that they could have done. It's an interesting experience sometime where so much of this parallels to like just money. And if you were to say, hey, if I give you a hundred million dollars today, would you still be doing what you're doing, right? And, and for many people, they'd say, well, no, I'd stop and I'd go try out these things or do X, Y, and Z. And you're thinking, well, so what are you waiting for? And they're like, well, I'm waiting for the, the hundred million dollars. So I'm curious from your standpoint where I think in the book, you mentioned that, you know, while many financial planners, they're of the mentality, not all, but just of save, save, save. They're thinking about the future, thinking about retirement. Economists, on the other hand, are recommending spend, spend, spend. And I'm curious as to why and who's right. Backing up a little bit, going back to that, you know, I love my job. It's that when you talk to somebody who loves their job, you got to deconstruct it. You love the people. Well, you could still see the people and not do this job. Why can't you invite them on dinner? Why can't you just take your money and take them on trips? You know what I mean? You can pay them on vacations. Like you could still do this. I like whatever. Like a lot of the things that the job provides are not the only way to get them, even with the same people that are there. You would actually see them more. It's just that that format, that methodology is what you've been habituated and inculcated to do. And therefore you don't do another thing. Now going back to, I'm sorry, the economists with the spend, 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 save, 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 you know, it's, it's in between, right? The data shows that people's net worth, those who save are rising in their seventies. And I'm like, my head is ready to explode. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, when is the party? Like, I don't mind people saving. I'm just like, tell me, what are you saving for? And when is the party? Just, just let me know. Just let me know. Just tell me the date, right? Like what is going on here? And so what that is indicative of is people are on autopilot building wealth for no purpose other than build wealth. They're exchanging hours of their life for no purpose, right? So I understand what you're saying, but I'm trying to be the contrarian in, in addressing, you know, let's say the person listening, they're saying, well, Bill, maybe it's not for no purpose. What if I get sick and I need to take care of myself? What about our kids? What about taking care of our family or our extended family? Let's say somebody's rationalizing it that way. So there was a couple things in there and I'll, I'll go first with the first one we'd say sick. And I said, a lot of people use that argument, like what if I get sick or whatever as an excuse? And it's kind of like a backwards looking excuse. It's not really the proper is to be an insurance agent for themselves. And so there's a little part in the book where I say, you're not the best insurance agent. Who are you kidding? First of all, you have one client. Second of all, you don't know anything about the statistics of the things you're doing. You're just making up a bunch of baddies. And so therefore you're inefficiently accumulating wealth or wasting hours of your life for an insurance policy that you're really not the best. If you're concerned about certain risks and mitigating certain risks, then it's much better for you to go buy the insurance product than for you to be your own insurance agent. So buy the insurance policy and then go live your life and go have fun, right? But this idea that I'm going to somehow mitigate against alien robots invading plus getting sick plus whatever. I'm like, you're not the guy. You're not the guy or the girl, right? Like this is just you making up a backwards excuse out of fear, right? I have fear. I don't want to admit that I'm afraid. So I'm just going to make up this excuse. Well, I need to save for all this other thing. So let's address those fears rationally. I, it's okay. Like, you know, I don't like sharks. You know, I, I, I'm afraid of a lot of things, but the things I'm afraid of and the things that I'm not willing to take a risk on I will buy the insurance product from people who have maybe a 6% edge than me giving up a 30, 40, 50% edge and not living my life. That's one, one part of it. The other part is, you know, I get a lot about 
kids and, and et cetera. And one of the things that, you know, there's a chapter called what about the kids, right? And the first thing I say is that when I say spend all your resources and use all your resources before you die, I mean exactly that your resources, not your kids' resources. So if we're really being intentional with our lives and we want to help our kids out and give them an inheritance, right? We need to think about the physics of their bodies, right? They'll mentally reach mental maturity at 28, physical maturity at 33, plateau and head into decline as well. And their ability to convert money into experiences declines just like your ability declines. And so therefore, the utility of money for them has a maximum value date. I argue it's between 28 and 33. And so, you know, if you look at the United States of America, the average age of inheritance, I think, is like 60. They're not effing kids anymore, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, right? When you give them money, what you're really giving them is life energy hours in order to make choices and have experiences. Well, guess what? They're not wakeboarding at 60, and they're not climbing Kilimanjaro. They're not doing a lot of things that they could have done, right? That doesn't make sense, right? Second of all, I say that when you just kind of leave it to random chance, what you don't spend, kind of like a tip on the way out, you're leaving them a random number. That's not deliberate. That's not intentional. That's not love. That's autopilot, right? And then also there's this thing that unfortunately it would be random people, the three R's, random people at a random date because people generally don't know when they're going to die and a random amount, right? because they're not really planning their life and being deliberate about what they're going to spend. So what I recommend is, is that you separate the money out. You put it in a trust. This is a show about attorneys. So they, they probably know more about it than I do, right? I learned from second hands. So that if you go out and hit somebody or get in a bar fight or whatever, somebody sues you, you're not gambling your kid's money. It's safe. And then the control of that money turns over when you deem appropriate, which should be I argue between the ages of 25 and 33. And so that accomplishes two things. One, you're intentional about your giving. You're giving them to them at the maximum impact time. And you're taking away the risk of losing their money. I can't go gamble away my kid's money. It's their money, right? And it will turn over to them at the time that I believe they will be mature enough to receive the gift, but not too old to enjoy it or to have so many experiences disappear that they can't enjoy. What would your advice be to someone, let's say, who, who wants to maximize their life energy? They want to maximize these experiences and levels of fulfillment, but they tend to play it safe and they have, let's say, a risk-averse personality. It really takes thinking about what risks you're concerned about, right? I guess, you know, I get a lot of concerned about outliving my money. I was like, well, buy an annuity, figure out the amount you want, and then buy an annuity, right? It's the opposite of an insurance policy, right? If you live too long, you think you're worrying about living too long, buy an annuity. I'm worried about long-term care health. If you buy long-term care now, it's very cheap. It's insanely cheap, actually. People say, oh, now it costs too much money. I'm like, no, it doesn't. And the younger you buy it, the cheaper it is, right? Because they go out and they take the risk and buy stocks and do things, et cetera. They take a risk against the inflation on long-term care. So I would say that take the moment to unplug, get off autopilot, figure out what risks you want to mitigate and see what the best way it is to mitigate that risk. Well, I will argue that the best way to mitigate that risk is not you piling up a bunch of cash that you never touch and, and you die with. 
And let's say, I mean, to, for someone to figure out their enough number, well, what are some ways to go about that? Because let's say they're thinking, well, here's how much money I can live on, right? That I live on today. But you know what? Maybe I'm going to want to travel the world and go to like, you know, a U2 concert, you know, in London and then do X, Y, and Z with my wife and all these experiences that I may not know that I want to do later on. I think that's probably one of the most difficult things that people have to do is because people are on autopilot and they don't really know what experiences they have. So, you know, that time bucketing exercise that I said is very difficult kind of like putting like, what experiences do I want to have here? What experiences want to have there? One of the things I often think of when I'm working is, what am I working for, right? If I quit now, do I cover all the things I want to do and fun and whatever? Or am I working for some of the fun that I'd like to continue? Is there something that I can't afford now that I want, right? Is there some reason? Is this some sort of charitable endeavor? Is this like a purpose thing that I, I want to put my hours into that I feel is worthy of the only resource I really have is my time? So I think about those things deeply because certain people fear running out of money, I think is backwards. You should fear wasting your life. That's the, my biggest fear is wasting my life. And so what are you working for? What is the money for that you're accumulating? That's an individual question that everybody should be asking themselves daily, if not daily, weekly, right? And that might change. Once you start going down that line of thought, you can pull out the what I call the time bucketing worksheet and figure out, okay, I'm 40. What experiences do I want to have between 40 and 45, 45 and 50, 50? What does that look like? Where do I live? How my house? Am I skiing everywhere? Am I helicoptering? I'm traveling around watching YouTube concerts. Okay, let's add it up. What does that look like, right? And I think a lot of people will be delusional about what they will be doing in their later years. And the data shows that by and large. One of the reasons why people's net worth keeps going up in their 70s is because they can't spend the money. They can't. They spend less money even when you look at the cost of healthcare than they do when they're in their 40s and 50s. They don't have the aptitude or attitude to spend the money. They just don't the life, the part of that costs a lot of money and doing trips and activities and high costs, by and large, the data shows it's passed them by. And if you look at any kind of like JP Morgan, high net worth individual report or these reports that they put out, the biggest problem they have is the accumulation, getting people to spend down their assets. They just can't. It's sad. That period is gone, right? They'd rather do other things. You know, I'm not saying everybody's in a wheelchair and they can't move. I'm just saying like, no, they'd rather visit their grandparents and hang out and garden or do whatever. Like the activities that you stereotypically see, it's like, oh yeah, that seems very attractive. You know, the older I get, the more farming looks very attractive to me. And so, you know, and I used to, used to think, oh, that's not going to be me. Fuck that shit. That's not going to be me. And then I looked at my dad and my mom and my grandma and I'm like, no, that's going to be me. Who am I kidding? These are my answers. These are like, this is going to be me, right? I'm a little bit more adventurous than them, but it's going to happen. And it's not even a matter of how in shape I am. Your attitudes change. Like I always say, like glow stick days in the club, I used to love it, love it. I can still go in a club and do glow stick. I'm just not into it as much. You know what I mean? That time has passed. Although I, in the book you say Vegas is more enjoyable at 40 than it is at, at 20. There are certain experiences, like at 20, it's like you're broke, you can't get in. And that's the thing you got to think deeply about. Like if you're going to go travel to Europe and do, I did travel to Europe and I did a biking tour through the wine country. 
I enjoyed that more later in age than I would have younger, right? My whole motif would have been, we're the girls. I hate biking, you know what I mean? Whatever. Whereas when, when I'm older, I'm like, this is beautiful and this chateau and the history and everything. Like I'm really absorbing and enjoy it. Where when I was younger, it would have just been like, we're the girls, we're the girls, we're the girls, right? And so in Vegas, it's a totally different Vegas when you're rich than when you're busted and your guy just where the girls, where the girls. I'm just speaking about me. That might be other people, right? But for each person, each activity will have an optimal time period for it to be done. So when I say, yeah, it's better than in your 20s and in your 30s, I'm speaking from my lens, right? For somebody else, it might be different, right? But getting off autopilot, really thinking about when did these experiences have the most fulfillment is very important. Really, to reiterate that, I mean, would it be fair to say that you're not necessarily advocating for someone to quit their job or sell their business? It's just more so, as you said, to get off autopilot, to live life in an intentional way, to really be moving in the direction of, let's say, either obtaining or living the freedom that you want to do things how you want to do them and really maximize fulfillment. Is that fair? Yeah, I would, I would say like for a lot of people who are past the survival number, et cetera, if you're like 50, 55 or something, your net worth is going up, something's going wrong. Now, maybe going wrong well, but something's going wrong. I have that thing. Like, I, I was talking to someone just the other day, and they were like, you know, are you bill? I was like, no, I'm not a billionaire. I said, if I'm a billionaire, I'm doing something wrong. And they looked at me like I was crazy. I was like, that's interesting. I said, yeah, I'm definitely doing something wrong. Either I, like, had a lottery business event that happened and I couldn't catch it, or I'm living completely wrong, right? There is no version of me shifting that many experiences at the tail end of my life, Right? where that's optimal. I'm misallocating resources. I'm misallocating my wealth. And so if you love going to your work and do your job, I'm like, fine, just make sure you spend the money. Make sure you also enjoy your life, right? If that's part of your enjoyment, so is the product of your labor, the fruits of your successes. I'm not gonna beat the heroin addict. Like, that's all I do, that's what I love. I'm like, okay, you're a heroin addict, your heroin is work, have fun. I can't convince you, I can't be you, right? I would just present to you the analogy of the heroin addict and ask you to reconsider that. I'm sure every day has, you know, it's, it's variances, but if you could describe what's a typical day in the life like for you right now? Oh man, there's no typical day. Where am I waking up? Am I in Austin? Am I in Houston? Am I in St. Thomas? Am I traveling? I get up, I do a little snuggling with my wife. There's always snuggle time or greeting. And that's just a habit that we like to do. I will do the human things that humans do, right? And breakfast. And then, I, you know, the, the market is always open. So I have spent the majority of the past years making sure that I can work from my phone, everything. And I think that's happened for everybody. There's DocuSign, there's programs, et cetera. But I also have all our fundamentals and all our analysis on a thing called Skynet that I can log in for trading. I can trade from my phone. I check the market. I check one of my slacks for my startups, see what's going on, chime in, parachute in as the president, right? You know, I love firing myself, so I don't run the thing, but I'm, I'm the guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm the guy. Depending on the weather, I may be one of two things. And then I just decide, like, what are we going to do? I'm always, a significant portion of my day is, are we going to go to a museum? Where are we going to travel? When are we going to Austin next? Where are we going? Maybe drive my daughter to school if I have my daughter that day, because that's, the only time I can get with them <laughs> is in the car. I used to hate doing that. And I caught myself, I'm like, wait, what am I doing? This time period to spend with my daughters, the windows of opportunity I have is actually driving to school and that's it. And otherwise it's like, we don't want to know you, dad. You know, we're going to hang out with our friends. 
that's kind of like the typical day is this kind of this like algorithm going on. Like, what are we going to do? What's a film day? Workout, whatever. Is it a workout day? Is it, it's food? My food and my eating is on a schedule. So that's kind of just rote. Don't even think about it. So interesting. So still staying engaged with the businesses, right? I mean, it, it, I'm sure you, you probably don't yeah. need to, right? From a financial standpoint, but you still choose to. This is a concept called Ikigai. And I've really adopted that in terms of what I'm doing. So it's like, what are you good at? What does the world need? What gives you purpose? And what can you make money, right? And if those four things is you have this concept called Ikigai, I will do things that fit that and things that don't fit that get cut. I'm a capitalist, right? I believe that one of the main ways you help people is doing productive work, right? And so that entrepreneurs, we get a fraction of the value that we create, right? Get a fraction, right? So you go ahead and, you know, if you see a billionaire, it's because he created, by and large, multiple billions of the value to society, right? And so how I provide value to society and purpose is these startups and these things that I'm doing. Now, trading is an engine, right? Trading is an engine that allows me to fly on the plane, rent a boat during the summer, do all the things. And that's a balance. So that comes in the point, like, what am I working for? Well, what I'm working for is this trip to Italy that we're going to do, this big giant wedding we have, inviting all my friends to my lake house, right? Like, that's what I'm working for. I'm like, is that worth it? I'm like, yeah, it's worth it, right? It's worth it. Other people will have different answers, right? Like, why are you going to work? Well, I'm going to work because I want to do X, Y, and Z, or I want to see the opera, or I want to get a pair transplant. I don't know. I'm just making things up. But that being aware of that and, and connected with that helps you stay off autopilot and having an intentional life. And you can read the book, you might agree with some things, whatever, but at the end of the day, if you implement some of the thought processes, some of the mental models, you'll save your own life. And I've said this before, and I'll, I'll say it again here. You know, I wrote this book to save my life. And when people, you know, my friends, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm giving this book because I want to save people's lives. And my friends are like, what the fuck are you talking about, per Perkins? That's a quote. What the fuck are you talking about? Like saving lives. And I'm like, well, listen, here you go. If somebody is drowning, and you jump in, you pull them out of the water, you give them out the mouth, they spit up, you know, they do the, the movie thing, spit up and they breathe and you're like, oh, you saved my life. And you're like, yeah, I, I, I saved your life. Guess what? They're still going to fucking die. 100% they are going to die. They are just not going to die that day. So what did you do? Right? Because obviously, you know, you just leave them in the water and let them die. What you did was, you gave him more experiences, more choices, more I love yous, more walks in the park, more visits with grandma, more of everything, right? And so when I write a book that allows you to optimize your life and get more experiences, more life, more fulfillment, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And so that's why I wrote the book. And that's what I hope everybody gets out of it. Love it. Love it. And, and Bill, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Being a game changer to me means having a massive positive impact on millions of lives. That's what being a game changer, elevating everybody's game, not just my game, like everybody's game. I want to give a huge thank you to Bill Perkins for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you. Yes, you for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader.
If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Bill Perkins, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. Oh, 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 oh